0: I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Chris Thomas, a cybersecurity researcher and white hat hacker who is also known as Space Rogue. Chris was a founding member of Loft Heavy Industries, a hacker collective based in the Boston area that was active between 1992 and 2000. Chris is also the author of the new book, Space Rogue, How the Hackers Known as Loft Changed the World, which is available for pre-order at all major retailers, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Bookshop.org. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Chris, I've been reading your book and I was pulled in from page one for personal reasons. We chatted about this before I hit record, but funny enough, you and I grew up in towns in Maine that aren't far from each other. And we actually grew up in somewhat similar fashions. So I didn't grow up on a seed farm like you did, but my father is a plumber. But I did have a, a TV with rabbit ears and some transistor radios and things like that and listen to outlaw countries such as Waylon and Willie. So I guess without further ado on that, do you want to start by telling us a little bit more about your journey from Winthrop, Maine to becoming Space Rogue and everything that you've gotten to experience since then?
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's why I started the book out with the growing up part, which is kind of the boring part for the overall story, but it's also where the story starts. And so how you go from having almost no technology to you know being an information security researcher as we call ourselves today, I thought was part of the overall story, which is why I included it. For me, you know, it got to high school where we we're using Commodore sixty fours and Commodore PET computers. And then advancing out of that, I joined the US Army. There was very little technology for me there. And then leaving the army and going to college, where we're talking about early Macs, like Mac SEs and whatnot. From that, I found a lot of online bullet board systems, which we would dial up over the telephone system. And I was able to meet and reach out to other like-minded people and found some folks. And we, we founded the loft from there. And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: Very cool. And so you mentioned loft and and that's obviously what your book centers around. So let's talk about loft heavy industries. I'll also notice that your cover art matches, I guess what you could call was the branding of loft.
1: Yes. So I guess it was important for me to use some of the iconography that the loft had. So we have the, I guess you call it the icon, but I also used the font that we used on our website, which is a handmade font by a guy. I think he lives in Canada. And I had a hell of a time tracking him down to get permission to use the font. It wasn't a shareware font or freeware. It was at the time it was made, uh, you know, back in the 90s. He actually had a license for it, but I couldn't find the guy. So I couldn't get permission until eventually I found some email address of his that worked. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead use the font. So we use the old font. We have the old logo. And then at the bottom, I also have what's supposed to be a picture. There's a the very iconic photo of the seven members of the loft testifying in Congress, sitting behind a large table. And we all have our little name plaques in front of us uh, with our handles. And I wanted to use that picture on the cover. But again, copyright rears its ugly head. And they wanted a, a little chunk of money to put that on the cover of the book so i can't afford that so i just i did a drawing instead so that uh, allows us to get the same look and feel of the photo without actually using the photo
0: very cool well i think it looks great it really came together and so tell us about the loft i mean you were one of the founding members and you take us through the early days in the book but take us through what you're willing to share without giving too much of your book away of course
1: Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because this is a story that has been told repeatedly since it occurred. And I think some of the details were being lost in the retelling, and I wanted to make sure I got my version of the story recorded. But for those that aren't familiar with the story, I wasn't actually a founding member, but I was one of the very early members. And it was basically a bunch of people in a clubhouse, for lack of a better term. This is before a hacker space existed, before that term was known. But that's kind of what it was. We all kind of gathered our miscellaneous computer equipment together, put it in an artist loft space in South Boston, and from there morphed into Loft Heavy Industries, which was kind of a tongue-in-cheek name that we just kind of gave ourselves, and we kind of spelled it funny: L0PHD. And we just morphed from having all our computers and playing with them and networking them to actually finding and reporting security vulnerabilities. And we were some of the very first people to do that and release information on security vulnerabilities publicly so that everybody could take advantage of them. Needless to say, because we were the first ones doing it, a lot of companies had a lot of pushback onto what we had to say and what we were publishing on our website. We got some notice of some different people. We got some press. Then we were invited to testify in front of Congress on the topic of weak computer security in government. And so the seven of us went down to Washington, D.C. and put on our finest suits and using our handles, our pseudonyms sat in front of John Glenn and Senator Thompson and Senator Snow, Senator Lieberman, and told them, you know, the the emperor has no clothes. Security is not that great in the government or anywhere else for that matter. And so I think it became a a watershed moment, one of many wake-up calls for information security. A few years after that, Loft got some venture capital funding, created a internet startup called At Stake, hired a ton of infosec talent of what existed at the time. And we sort of I don't want to say indoctrinated, but influenced folks into the Loft way of thinking, and the Loft way of doing everything. And then, of course, as the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s exploded or popped at stake, got subsumed into Semantic. And most of the folks that were involved kind of spread off to various parts of the Internet and are still out there running things today. So the Loft, through one way or another, either through our early website and disseminating information and providing advisories through telling people about the loft and the loft story and the loft way of doing things through At Stake, we sort of have had a very wide influence, I think, on the information security industry as a whole, even today. That's kind of what the book is about. And that's it from start to finish. I don't know if there was a particular point that you wanted to delve into.
0: One thing I just wanted to say is you cover so much in the book. How did you remember everything? Because I, I mean, I, I know that's always challenging with anything, right? But I mean, you seem to have a really great memory <laughs>
1: I have a terrible memory. <laughs> I can't remember anything. Ask my wife. She absolutely knows that. So I have tried to write this book for a long time, for at least five years or so. And I would sit down and I would try to write a story and it wasn't there. I'd get a couple of paragraphs, maybe a page or two, and nothing happened. And then at some point I decided, you know, what, I really need to buckle down and do this. And so I just started jotting down memories when they came to me randomly. Was like, oh yeah, I remember that story. And I'd write a little bullet point. When I had a half a page or so or a page of, of bullet points, I started organizing them into topics and making an outline, so to speak. And then once I had the outline, like that was the key framework. And then I could fill in the points. And then as you're writing one story, you start thinking and remembering about parts of another story. And you're like, oh, oh, I got to go do this other part of the story before I forget it. And then you got to come back to it. The... So it kind of back and forth and the memory sort of jogged itself back into being. And I'm sure there are a lot of bits and pieces that I have forgotten and left out. But, uh, you know, I wrote what I could and what I hopefully I got enough in there to give people a good sense of what the loft was and what we meant and what we stood for and, and things we accomplished.
0: Yeah, for sure. I feel like you have some good disclaimers as far as like, this is what I can remember. This is the best I can do. Of course, every story can be told a different way. I spoke with Kingpin last year and he mentioned how you used to drive him home at night because where the loft was, I think it maybe was the original location where it was located was like not the greatest part of town. If <laughs> if you remembered anything about that, I'd be curious.
1: I don't know if he, re- if he mentioned he was in high school at the time. <laughs> he was definitely the youngest. And so, yeah, so loft existed in two locations. One was in South Boston, the first location in a large artist's loft. We would be hacking at Loft late into the night and he lived over in Brookline, the good part of Brookline. We'd get in our uh, my trusty Ford Escort and uh, I'd truck him over to Brookline. And uh, Brian too, because Brian was living out in Watertown at one point. I remember one night, I think it was Brian I was giving a ride home, but it was so cold. Oh, this was in my Ford Tempo. I had to think <laughs> about Ford. It wouldn't stay running and it was ice cold out. It was like one of those super cold nights. And so I'd get the car started and we'd go like, you know, 500 feet, maybe a thousand feet and the car would conk out and I'd have to wait and try to start it again. And so in between the car stalling, Brian would get out of the car and like put on his ski pants. Then he'd hop back in the car and we'd go another thousand feet. (laughs) And finally he's like, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going to ride my bike home. He took his bike out of the trunk and rode it the rest of the way home. And I ended up having to leave the car on the side of the road and walk home at some point and then come back and try to get it the next day when it was a little warmer. That car was not a good car. It was old. It actually had a carburetor. Like it was. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was not good. Anyway, that's not a. That's a. Random
0: story <laughs> it's a it. good one.
1: That's, that's not in the book. <laughs> that one's not in the.
0: book. Oh, I got a story. It's not in the book. That's funny. I feel like we all, I mean, those of us who are humbled have stories like that. Like I had a Honda Civic. One of my first cars was a, a Honda Civic that. I came to find out only ran on two cylinders, two of four, (laughs) and the exhaust was coming in through the vents and I had to drive with the windows open So I had no other choice. (laughs) But anyway, so what were you working at on rather, you know, during your time at the loft? Because when I was talking to Kingpin, he was talking about like how he was like a hardware guy and kind of seems like every member kind of had their own discipline or expertise. So what were you interested in working on in hacking?
1: I was doing a lot of Mac stuff. Ran an FTP site called Whacked Mac Archives. Here's another story. I, I think this one's in the book, but I'll tell it anyway. So I ran an FTP site called Whacked Mac Archives. And in the Whacked Mac Archives, it had a lot of hacking utilities for early Mac OS systems. It wasn't even called Mac OS then, it was like System 7, System 8. And so it had like war dialers and credit card number checkers and port scanners and other mm-hmm. tools that were very common in Windows or Unix systems, but very rare to find on Mac systems. The Mac hacking BBS scene was very minimal. So I would collect these pieces of software for a couple of years. And so once the loft got up and online and uh, had a, a dedicated internet access of all 56 VOD, right? A modem line. I created a small web server on a Mac plus with uh, you know, 10 megabytes of files. Megabytes, not gigabytes or terabytes, and I crafted up some web pages for all the files and stuck that online, Uh, and that was one of the big things. I think one of my big contributions, and so people would come to the loft website and the Whack Mac website, Whack Mac archives, and download all the files. But all we had was a modem line; it's not a lot of bandwidth, and so I had to limit the FTP site to I think like two or three users at a time. And people, of course, would get on there and try to download the whole thing as opposed to just like one or two files. And so it was constantly flooding the entire connection. So unbeknownst to me, Weld created a script on the main loft box called upwhacked, downwhacked. So they would run this script when they were in the loft and they were trying to hack on something and they needed bandwidth, they would just go downwhacked. And that would turn the WebDP site off. And then when they were done and they didn't need the bandwidth anymore, they were supposed to run upwhacked. But A lot of times they would forget to run the Upwax script. So the site would be down for two or three days at a time before somebody remembered to run the script to turn it back. And I didn't know about this for years. And I don't remember how I found out, but I was like, so anyway, we ended up burning all of the files on the WACMAC archives to a CD disc and then selling the disc to people who wanted to get the files probably quicker through the mail than from downloading them.
0: That's smart. (laughs) I actually miss burned CDs, but anyway. So, One thing I talked to Kingpin about last year, and then, you know, it's a big thing, obviously, you already mentioned it, but what was it like when you all were invited to speak with and testify before the U.S. Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs in 1998? Something Kingpin had said was he was like, I had historically viewed the government as evil and, you know, like the man. But So I didn't know if you viewed it the same way or if you felt a little differently. But yeah, I'll turn it over to you.
1: We were very apprehensive uh, at the time, and we didn't really know what to expect. We had been invited to come testify, and, and I and I tell like how that occurs in the book because it was told to me or my interpretation. Years later, I find out that other folks in the loft have different interpretations as to how that happened. But for me, it was through various media hits that we had in the Washington Post, and that got recognized by somebody in Senator Thompson's office who then reached out to us to come testify. And we were very apprehensive at first. We were not actually as commonly misconstrued the first hackers to testify. Emmanuel Goldstein actually went a few years before us, and it's not widely known because he was not treated very nicely. And we knew that, and we were very concerned that a similar thing would happen to us. I mean, once you're in the room, they can ask you whatever they want. They'll get you in the room before you get in the room, and then they can just, you know, sideswipe you. So we didn't really publicize the fact that we were going to go and do this beforehand because we didn't know what was going to happen. We felt it was important for us to be there in case it went well and to be able to share our side of the story and possibly educate some of the legislators. But we didn't publicize it beforehand, and we didn't say anything to anybody until after when we realized, okay, yeah, this went pretty good. Let's let people know that it happened. So yeah, it was very trepidatious, very nervous, very uncertainty leading up to it.
0: I was watching the footage because I think actually Kingpin posted on his YouTube channel, but it seemed like they were nice to you guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's on my YouTube channel too. I think it's on all of ours. It's out there on YouTube. C-SPAN lost it for a while. Oh. like We tried to get it right after and they couldn't find it. Like I... <laughs> So all congressional hearings are printed by the US government printing office with your written testimony and the verbal testimony is all transcribed for you. So I remember I called up the US government printing office that sells these things and asked for 20 copies. And they're like, well, that's all we have. I'm like, you only printed 20 copies. And they're like, yeah, well, like, what do you usually nobody asks for these? I'm like, what do you want with 20 copies? So they sent me, I think I got like six or seven copies out of them. And then Kingpin actually took them and got them professionally leather bound. Oh, cool. So we all have an official bound copy of the printed testimony from the U.S. Government Printing Office. a nice little memento.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's really cool. So you mentioned... Not exactly this a little earlier, but you kind of touched upon it. Do you feel like the effort that you all put in at Loft and testifying before the Senate helped kind of bring us where we are today as far as like destigmatizing hackers and, you know, information sharing and everything else?
1: It's interesting to look back on it. I mean, today, yeah, I would absolutely say that it had a, a huge impact just because it became such a major event. I don't think we expected that to happen you know, here we are 25 years later, almost, yeah, the 25th anniversary is coming up in May, and we're still talking about it. I wrote a book about it, right? So at the time, though, I'm not sure we understood how significant that event would be. And we're like, okay, yeah, we went to DC, we talked to some legislators, it sounded like they listened to us, maybe they learned something. And I think it took a long time for that to sort of sink in. The government has been playing catch up for a long time, especially then, uh, you know, in 1998, they were way behind the power curve. I think now we're starting to get on even level footing. The creation of the new government agency CISA, C-I-S-A, is is really, I think, making some major strides and doing tremendous work in the space of educating small business, everybody actually, and what they can and and shouldn't do in regards to cybersecurity. So yeah, I think it's made a difference over the long term. Short term, it was hard to see that. But 25 years later, it's easy to look back and say, yeah, I think it made a difference.
0: Very cool. You guys were in it for the long game. You didn't even know. One quick thing. I think- I don't remember where I read it, but it's not really a question for you. It's just a funny thing. I, I read somewhere you assisted with escorting members of Congress around DEFCON once and its various villages. And I'm not a member of Congress, obviously, but I truly wish you could have escorted me this past year at DEFCON 30 because it was my first time there and I was completely lost in the sauce. I was just like so overwhelmed. I was like, whoa, this is very challenging. So anyway, I just thought that was funny.
1: No, it, DEFCON 30 is huge. Last year was just, it was a C. Yeah. I haven't seen it that big oh, before. Okay. Um, okay. Well, figures. But yeah, there's an organization called Hackers on the Hill run by Bo Woods, uh, and he usually handles helping to escort Congress critters through DEFCON. And then we also, he does a thing in the spring, just in conjunction with ShmooCon in Washington, D.C., where he gets hackers together and they go visit legislative offices and talk to staffers and and Congress people. And again, trying to help educate and inform on information security issues of the day. But yeah, I've done that at DEF CON a couple of times, and it's always eye-opening as well. Well, one, because DEF CON lets you go behind the scenes and through the secret walkways in the hotels to get from point A to point B to avoid the crowds, which is always kind of cool. But also because you get to FaceTime with the people who are really in power and able to affect change and being able to talk to them one-on-one and hopefully bring them around to the loft way of thinking so that the government can you know catch up to the bad people and get us in front of things instead of always being behind
0: yeah definitely so what was leaving loft and you know i guess it was then at stake like for you was it kind of like breaking up the band was it like a guns and roses exit was everyone met ma- or like was were you all like kind yeah. of amicable or i mean i guess also like do you guys still talk it sounds like you perhaps are still in good spirits but i i was just thinking about that as i was reading
1: have you read that part of the book yet
0: i haven't read through all of it no yeah. I, I just okay. kind of yeah. got up to it so
1: So, yeah, the whole at stake portion was not the best time for me. You know, money ruins everything, as they say. And that's kind of what happened, I think. We got the venture capital. uh, We didn't get it. It was another company. I think it had a different name at the time. I don't remember. But they had the venture capital and then they approached us and, and basically bought us and we became one company. And that was called At Stake. And and the first couple of weeks were months were great. Everybody was happy. We we're running around. We we're doing things. And we got cool new Arion chairs and new laptops. And we didn't have enough chairs, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. But a couple of months into it, the venture capital firm realizes, you know, we need somebody to run this show and, and steer this ship and be in charge. And so they bring in a CEO and, and he kind of starts laying down the law. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Part of that, at least from my point of view, was needing to make a statement to everybody else in the company. And so I, and actually a couple other people, got laid off, fired, if you will. Not a good feeling if you've ever been fired. I have. It's a hard, hard thing, right? It's really hard. In this case, it wasn't just getting fired from a job. It was getting fired from seven friends, six other friends who I'd had for eight or nine years. And you know, you go home and all your accounts are cut off, like your loft account that you've had for seven years. It, gone like you can't get to it anymore so yeah that took me a long time to deal with and recover and I kind of fell down a deep hole and had to crawl my way out nowadays things are amicable Uh, we all sort of talk to each other we have a mailing list and we say hello to each other at, at conferences and once in a while we get together you know sometimes in the summer we'll all get together or whatever when we can not everybody can you know Kingpin's on the west coast so it's difficult for him to get out to the east coast and we're not all in Boston anymore either I'm in Philadelphia
0: now And
1: we all have families now, so there's a lot of other moving parts. But for the most part, it's an amicable situation, I think.
0: That's good. I'm glad to hear that. And your Arian chair is funny because the first ad agency that I worked at, because that's what I did before this world, Somebody quit, I don't know. And they were similar size to me because there are different sizes for those chairs. And I was like an intern and they're like, do you want this chair? And I felt like I really made it. I was like, I got the Arion chair, like big deal. Like I'm gonna be here forever, but I wasn't. But anyway, so you you mentioned, you know, getting out of that hole and, and you've built a career as a cybersecurity researcher and advocate. So how did you take your time at Loft and kind of build that success onto that? I always think everyone should go through, not necessarily go through that, like I'm wishing ill upon everyone, but you got to go through that time of your career, your life, whatever, where you have to like really figure things out. And I think, although it's really hard at the time, it it makes the end a little better. I think we'll find out. I'm not the end yet, hopefully, but.
1: (laughs) Well, I think a few years after at stake, Tan, one of the Loft members called me up and he's like, dude, we got to do Hacker News Network again. And I'm like, Why? And for those that don't know, Hacker News Network was a website that I had started while at the loft that disseminate information security news. And I would just basically go out and grab headlines and then write a little blurb about each one and post news every single day. Kind of a blog before there was blogs, like blogs didn't exist then. Slashdot was big, and I was trying to be a little bit like Slashdot. But you know, after I got fired from At Stake, At Stake held on to H&N, Hacker News Network, and then let it die you know, a couple of months later. So it kind of petered out and ended. And so Tan calls me. He's like, yeah, we got to do that again. I'm like, no, no, we don't. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to do it. We got to do it in video. I'm like, video? I don't know anything about video. And this is way before the YouTube explosion. And we were way ahead of the curve. So this was like 2009, 2010. And so somehow he convinced me to do it. And I borrowed a camera from work, I remember, and then recorded a demo. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is kind of a sort of a thing. And so we did that for like two years almost. We had different segments, and we had special effects, and I would get on the news every day, do the news every day like a news broadcast, and it was fun and enjoyable, but it wasn't making any money, and it was taking a lot of time and effort. As anybody who's even done a podcast before can attest, it's actually a lot of work. I remember I did podcasts later on, and it was still a lot of work. When that died out, I got a job at Trustwave. From Trustwave, I moved on to Tenable. From Tenable, I moved over to IBM X-Force, which is where I am now, just kind of doing the thing.
0: Can you also tell us more about Cyber Squirrel One? I was, I was reading about that, <laughs> whatever you're willing to share, but I was reading more about that. So I was curious what prompted you to create this project. And I guess, what do you think about, in addition to creating Cyber Squirrel One, what do you also think about what we're experiencing regarding the attacks on critical infrastructure?
1: So Cyber Squirrel One is not in the book. It was created well after LOFT, other than me, is not connected to LOFT at all. Jericho, for those who know him, Brian Martin, and I don't remember who his co-presenter was, and I think it was Josh Cormer, but I could be wrong. They gave a talk about cyber war is not what we were thinking, the squirrels are winning or something. They had a slide in their talk about power outages, and they had one power outage for every state caused by an animal. And I think in Hawaii, they use chickens because they don't have any squirrels. In <laughs> so I, I was like, oh, that's an interesting statistic. You've got one power outage in every state. And I'm like, I wonder really how many there are. And so I started scraping Google and other news sites. And I'm like, wow, there's quite a few. So I started listing them all. I created a map and put a pin in every outage all around the world. And so it's kind of a little bit of a tongue in cheek website. There was a lot of rhetoric around power outages and critical infrastructure and how vulnerable things were to attack and that a cyber attack would plunge the entire country into darkness for months on end. And I'm just like, yeah, no, that's no, not going to happen. So that was part of one of the reasons why I created Cyber Squirrel 1, to sort of show that, yeah, power outages happen, happen all the time. Animals cause a vast majority of them, number one behind weather. Weather's always number one. And you can have a power outage from a cyber attack, absolutely. And we've have a couple of examples of those that have happened recently in you know, the last couple of years. But taking the power out and keeping it out are two different things, right? So yeah, you have a power outage, last a day. Couple hours, maybe. Recently, in my old house, I had several power outages that lasted five days or longer. And, you know, it's an inconvenience, but it's not the end of the world. It's not what's known as a democracy ending event. So, got to keep that rhetoric in check a little bit. And I think that was the point of Cybersquirrel One. As for the attacks that are happening today, for the most part, what we're seeing are physical attacks against substations. And there has been some research into if you hit the right substations at the same time or at the right times, you can cause cascading failures and cause large swaths of power outages. The question is which substations and how are you going to coordinate that much effort? That's a big lift. So yeah, there is a potential threat there, but the attack surface is huge and the risk is actually not that high. And as we've seen with the current physical attacks on substations, yeah, it impacts the local area. There is a major inconvenience for those folks. And there is potential even loss of life, depending on what equipment's impacted. But as far as a democracy ending event, as it's called, or a black swan event, it's not a very high risk.
0: Here, where I am in New Hampshire, we've lost power so many times already this winter. And it's just like constantly, I mean, we have a generator, it's fine, whatever, but it's an inconvenience, but it's certainly not the end of the world for us.
1: I mean, yeah, there's a lot of power just going on in Texas right now. And there are other issues with our infrastructure other than cyber attack, right? Yeah. That's not the number one issue that we should be concerned about. We should dedicate money to actually modernizing and updating the current infrastructure as opposed to worrying about whether or not we're going to get cyber attacked and have our power taken up.
0: So I think that's a nice segue into my next question, just as it happens. What do you view today as the biggest issues that are facing cybersecurity and information security?
1: I don't know if those have ever changed. Big issues are really awareness, I think, is probably one of the number ones, and that has increased a lot. Companies now require cybersecurity training every year, you know, to try to educate consumers and, and employees on you know what a bad link looks like, or what social engineering is, or how to choose a, a good password. Uh, in fact, the better companies don't even let the users choose a good password. They force you to choose a good password. and make sure it's over a certain length and has certain characters and has enough entropy in it. So yeah, awareness is something that has increased steadily over time. And I see that continuing to increase. Some of the other problems we have though are, are more fundamental, right? We're still designing flat networks. We're still putting... Default passwords into consumer electronic devices. We're still doing these basic, simple things that we've known about for 25 years. And we still have instances where companies are are still making the same mistakes over and over again. And so while on the one hand, things are getting better, on the other hand, we're still making the same old mistakes.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And so... I guess my last question for you, Chris, is, you know, there's always more work to be done, but apart from having written this book and and your current role, which you shared with us at IBM x Force, you know, what else are you working on right now?
1: Mostly focusing on work, actually, and promoting the book. Work keeps me pretty busy. I'm working to help do a little bit of work with our internship program at X-Force. I work internally with some clients, work with some policy stuff, trying to, again, continue to help educate legislators, not only at the federal level, but also state and local. So I keep busy, a little bit of everything, not so much on the technical side. I save that for the home projects.
0: Sounds great. Well, Chris... Thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time. Really appreciate it. And it was just lovely speaking with you.
1: Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed my time here. And uh, again, the book comes out February 16th, available at all major resellers, either then or you could pre-order it today.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Chris. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining us today was Chris Thomas, a cybersecurity researcher and white hat hacker who is also known as Space Rogue. Chris was a member of Loft Heavy Industries and is also the author of the new book, Space Rogue, How the Hackers Known as Loft Changed the World, which is available for pre-order at all major retailers, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and bookshop.org. You can listen to more podcast episodes by visiting us at cybercrime.radio.